today we are still in Ecclesiastes 4, and we've moved on to, from the first couple of verses to uh, verses 4 through 6. And so uh, let me read those to you right now. Um, verse 4, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet, better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. Well, interesting stuff, right? Uh, And it seems like these are three verses that basically have nothing to do with one another. And so we got to figure out what Solomon, who arguably, uh, unarguably, is the wisest guy that ever lived, why did he put this in here like that, following this discussion that he started last time when we were getting, getting together about oppression and what oppression is all about? Well, what these verses talk about is the foolishness of envy and toil. Envy and toil. So, let's talk about envy first. Envy. What is envy? What do you think? Envy. You've heard about it. You've seen movies about it. Envy. Now, let me give you a couple of definitions. Um, It's a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. So, you're feeling bad about what somebody else has because you want it. It's also a desire to have quality, possession, or other desirable attributes belonging to someone else. So we get the, uh, the thread that's running through this concept of envy is basically man's desire to have something or a quality that he sees in somebody else. Now, we talk a lot about envy in our world, and there's a, a, a bunch of, uh, you know, when you, when you think about it, people kind of have an understanding of it, but where is it in the Bible? I mean, is, it, uh, is there, is there a, a connection with the idea of envy in the Bible? And, and the answer is yes, but they use a different word for it. They use the word coveting, covetousness. And that's what you see a lot in the Bible. And actually, it's in a very critical place in the Bible. Um, Can you think about where a lot of the the concern about coveting is mentioned, where a lot of people might understand it or grab it? Yeah, and the Ten Commandments. Anybody know which commandment it is? Not quite all of them. It's the last one. It's the Tenth Commandment. So we talk about the Ten Commandments, and a lot of times when you're trying to get on a common ground with somebody who doesn't really know Scripture well, and you guys, you know, are kind of the, you know, the front, um, uh, you know, the front runners in, in, in these kinds of discussions in our world, Ten Commandments is something that a lot of people understand, and they say, oh, well, I'm not a bad person. I haven't really broken the Ten Commandments, they'll come back and say. And you say, oh, really? Okay, well, let's talk about that. But the the 10th commandment says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. So, that's the 10th commandment. And it's pretty clear... And he even gets into some specifics there about it. But 
have to understand that what we're really talking about here, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is the idea that you're not supposed to look at anybody else and say, I want to be that. I want to have that. I, I want to be, my, my situation needs to be closer to what this person's situation is. So how do you think we're doing on that commandment? I mean, probably I'd say some of you guys have probably not gone out and murdered anybody lately. Uh, or you maybe haven't lied or stolen anything. But coveting? Showing some envy about somebody else? How do you think we're doing? Well, what if, what if I told you that there was a billion-dollar industry that was designed to try to get you to go out and commit, suicide, uh, commit murder? You'd say, oh, that's a bad organization. Or how about a billion-dollar industry that was designed to go out and get you to lie? That would be a bad organization. But with the 10th commandment, we've really got that kind of an industry that, that is in our culture today. And we call it advertising. Advertising. The design of advertising is to try to point us in the direction of covetousness. It's been successful at combining two impressively powerful uh, concepts in our culture that weigh against men everywhere. The first one, the state of continually wanting more. And secondly, the idea that who we are as individuals is somehow connected to what we have. And this is where Solomon was trying to drill into. We have, we have bought off on this idea that who I am as a person is somehow connected to the car that I drive or the clothes that I wear or the stuff that I have. And this is where Solomon was pointing. Now, advertising wasn't always like this. I don't think any of you guys are old enough to remember this, but back before World War One, uh, back before World War One, advertising was designed to just give you information about products. That's all it was. So it would tell you how big and how wide and how deep or whatever something was. But after World War One, um, the uh, folks in the in our manufacturing said, you know. Uh, people are being, they're too frugal. They're not parting with their money quickly enough. And so we got to associate products with image and glamour and personal identity. And so they began to manufacture desire, not so much information. And so consequently, you've got companies like uh, and these are the easy ones, Abercrombie and Fitch. I don't know if you remember the, all the, the hubbub about that and taking something in our culture that is potentially quite dangerous, which is sex and an abusive look at sex and turning it into the way that they would sell clothing. You've got Armani, who's trying to tell you that if you're a, if you're a man, then you've got the body that some pro athletes got or else you don't measure up and it's okay to run around in your underwear. And then... Automobiles that promote the idea that if you've got a certain kind of car, then you are somehow successful or somehow somebody to be uh, considered. So marketing moved from fulfilling needs to creating those needs. 
So success then is presented as having something that you do not have or that you don't have enough of. It's also connected with having things that somebody else already has. So coveting or envy becomes an inward thing. It's something in your heart. It's an attitude of the heart. Now knowing the dangers of this, Jesus teaches about it in Luke 12. And he says, very simply, beware of covetousness. He taught that it was something that we call a root sin. You ever heard of a root sin? This is a sin that's deep within you that causes you most of the time, often, to commit some other kind of sin. So consequently, you want something that somebody else has. So how do you get it? Well, you take it from them. Or you, somebody is standing in your way of something that you want, and so you find that it's okay to kill them in order to get that thing. And that's what he's talking about with a root sin. And Jesus understood this and preached against it. And this is what Solomon was also talking about. So if this weren't bad enough, if the idea about wanting these things and, and, and uh, having this kind of covetousness and envy is not bad enough, there's another danger that Solomon talks about. If you work hard and do well, what are the results? Well, you may end up with a little bit more. You may end up with some nice things or a life that is a good life. But then what happens as a result of that? People see it, and they envy it, and they decide that they want what it is that you have. And so they attempt to bring you down. And Solomon says, because of this, it's a waste of time to strive for success. That's a pretty big leap, I think. I mean, you work hard, and you have a few things that you would like to have for whatever advertising reason or personal reason that you know, you've got. And then Solomon's trying to tell you, oh, but that's a bad thing. Because now people are envying you and, and that's going to create difficulty for you. And even if you don't live in a way that demonstrates pride, let's say you're you know, trying to show that you're successful to other people, even if you don't do that, folks still look at you and and uh, have envy for the things that you have. I have a wealthy friend, and he said to me one time, when did I become a target? I don't understand that. When did I put a big target on my back so that people would start coming after me because of things that I do, things that I say, things that I have? I get folks that are coming up to me from time to time, and instead of saying, hey, you know, good on you for doing well. He says, they're, they're cutting me down. They're looking for every little thing that I do. And, and I'm under a microscope. I've got this target on my back. And he truly felt that. So what's the solution? Well, could it be to throw up your hands and just give up? That's what Solomon's saying. Throw up your hands and give up. And Solomon says, No. That's what a fool does. Why? Well, 
It ends in a worse outcome. And here's what he says. Folding your hands together in idleness makes you unmoved by reason or counsel. You end up consuming your own flesh, he says. And what's that mean? That means that you end up in a situation where there is no redeeming value to your life. Well, again, you know, I keep looking, when you, when you read scripture, you keep looking for those, you know, however, or but, and here's the, here's the bright shining solution to it all. And again, throughout this chapter, Solomon doesn't provide that to us. He continues to point out the dangers of things and is leaving it to later on in the chapter or for the rest of scripture to try to help us to negotiate or to deal with these things. But he he gets to verse 6. And remember verse 6 said, uh, And yet better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. Well, what's that mean? Well, this is where Solomon says the best course of action between these two extremes of working hard and idleness is to try to have a balance of both. That's what he's talking about when he says one handful of quietness. What do you think quietness would reflect? Quietness is the peace of not working, the, the, the rest that you would enjoy in your life. To have one handful of that and then the other that's full of work. And why does he say this? Well, because he recognizes that for most guys, having two handfuls of work seems to be the solution to, to, to getting by in life and to being successful. To saying, I'm going to make it. I'm going to pull myself out of this place that I am and get to a place that I would rather be. And what is, and, and as Solomon pointed out, what's that place you'd rather be? Well, sometimes it's not necessarily what you would do in your, in your inner heart if n- you had no other um, uh, issues in your life that you're trying to struggle with. It's what people tell you you should be doing. And that's where he talks, uh, we talked about the concept of envy. So it does not work to have both hands consumed with work, but it also doesn't work to be consumed with quiet, to say, you know what, I'm just going to get away from it all. I'm going to resign from society. I'm going to go off in a cabin someplace and live my life that way. Solomon says you can't do that either. Because that's not how men are built. Men have to work. Men have to succeed. Men have to, to, uh, to have conquests. But at the same time, if that's what fills your life, it becomes a great struggle. So in Solomon's mind, the ideal place is to find a balance between work and rest. And that becomes our mission. And that's the focus of your questions this morning, to discover how to find quietness and avoid what Solomon says is chasing the wind.